2: Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. Every October, the nation observes National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. According to the National Breast Cancer Foundation, one in eight women will develop invasive breast cancer in their lifetime. To help bring great awareness to this disease, we have two very special guests. Ali Rogan is a producer for the PBS NewsHour Foreign Affairs team and a 10 year veteran of DC political affairs covering the White House, Capitol Hill, and the State Department. During her senior year at NYU, she discovered that she had the BRCA-1 genetic mutation and decided to undergo a double mastectomy and reconstructive surgery prophylactically. She is the best-selling author of Beat Breast Cancer Like a Boss. Dr. Felice Gersh is a board-certified OBGYN and integrative medicine specialist. She taught as an assistant clinical professor at the Keck USC School of Medicine for 12 years and is the founder and director of the Integrative Medicine Group of Irvine, California. A globally recognized expert on women's health and complex disease management, she regularly speaks at conferences around the world. Dr. Gersh's latest book is titled Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know. Allie, Dr. Gersh, welcome to That Said. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So Allie, you've written a wonderful book here called Beat Breast Cancer Like a Boss. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself to get started and about the book and particularly perhaps the title of this book?
3: Sure. So I uh, am a carrier of the BRCA1 genetic mutation, which increases a woman's risk of breast cancer to uh, somewhere around 80% or higher over the course of her life. And I, uh, tested for this gene back in college, um, because my dad was a carrier and we can get into that and how this, this gets passed down doesn't matter whether your mom or dad is a carrier. Uh, and, uh, when I was a uh, senior in college, knowing that I had this high risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer, I decided to have a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy. <laughs> And I had that done right before I graduated college. And um, I did that so young, even though some people questioned me doing it so young, because I wanted to just get on with my life and not have to worry about waking up every day and thinking, is this the day I'm going to wake up with breast cancer? So that happened. Uh, I never looked back. It was a great decision for me. And a few years after that, I started thinking about how I could use my story and the stories of others that I had come to know about uh, to, to compile them and help other people. And that's really what sparked my desire to write this book. And a couple years later, I interviewed 30 uh, amazing um, people who have been affected by breast cancer. Some of them are previvors like myself. Some of them have survived one or two battles with breast cancer. Some are living and will continue to live with metastatic breast cancer. And uh, my hope is that people who pick up the book will feel a sense of community by reading these stories and find at least one common thread in each of those stories that they can relate to and hopefully uh, feel some support through. In the title
2: of the book, you use the word beat breast cancer. And and I've heard you talk about that word and what it means to you. Cause it's not simply a matter of becoming cancer free. It contemplates other things. So can you talk a little bit about that as well?
3: Yeah. And I have a bit of a love hate relationship with the word beat in this context, because so often our sense of what that word means is limited to people who, as you say, uh, go through go into remission and remain cancer free for the rest of their life. That's usually what we what we conceive of when we think about somebody beating cancer. And that's really limiting and that's actually not the necessarily the most pervasive um, outcome. Lots of women deal with, uh, even if they never get breast cancer again, they go through the rest of their lives having great anxiety about it. So in that sense, it's never really something that you put in your rear view mirror there are also lots and lots of times where a recurrence can happen. And just because you have a recurrence of cancer doesn't mean you've lost the fight. Um, Even if, uh, you know, even when deaths happen due to cancer, it doesn't mean that that person um, fought any less valiantly or worked any less hard in, in beating the disease. And so, I have sought through this book to redefine what it means to beat breast cancer and to broaden and out to include people who are defiantly living life on their terms, no matter what stage of breast cancer they're in, no matter what their diagnosis is, no matter what their prognosis is. If you're getting out of bed in the morning and endeavoring to do the things that you like to do, um, endeavoring to, uh, spend time with the people you love, uh, that to me is beating breast cancer because you are not letting it uh, interfere with uh, your life to the best of your ability. Um, even though, of course, life changes after a diagnosis, relationships change after a diagnosis. But the point is that um, you don't, beating breast cancer doesn't have to look any one way. And so I think it's necessary for all of us to rethink what it means to beat breast cancer. It's
2: Wonderful. Dr. Gersh, uh, I want to bring <clears throat> bring you into the conversation but first give us a little bit of of your background in in women's health matters please
0: Sure well I'm a board certified OBGYN but I went beyond that so after decades of delivering thousands of babies it was my time to sort of move on from that and I moved into a new phase where I went back to school and did a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. And so now I focus on all aspects of women's health and I look at sort of the big picture. I, I look at all the lifestyle issues that can impact women's health and what we can do to improve life. I look at all therapies, including all the conventional surgeries, pharmaceuticals, but also um, evidence-based herbals and. Other types of modalities like using time-restricted eating and fasting and and so on to try to optimize women's, women's health throughout the decades of life to improve fertility when they're looking to improve fertility and deal with menopause during that phase and so on. So I basically brought in my therapeutic toolbox to help women in like ways that maybe conventional doctors are not always utilizing.
2: So using this as a jumping off point, Can you talk a little bit about early detection, diagnosis, preventive steps, things that, and Ali and Felice, I want you both to be in conversation with one another, and I'm happy to sit back and learn from the two of you. But can you talk a little bit about breast cancer and ovarian cancer comes in multiple forms, and there are lots of different diagnostic and other prevention detection techniques out there. So can you guys talk through that a little bit? Maybe Dr. Gersh, you can get us started.
0: Sure. So since I'm not an oncologist, I, I don't treat directly treat breast cancer. So I do focus, as you said, on taking whatever steps we can to be proactive and preventative with breast cancer. And then for women who do get diagnosed with breast cancer, to try to do everything possible so that they don't get a recurrence. So You know, we know that people can even be born with certain genetic predispositions, which isn't actually destiny. It's a a risk factor. So what can we do to ameliorate these risk factors? And and there's actually quite a lot. We know that environmental toxicants, those ubiquitous endocrine disruptors that interfere with normal hormone signaling and function can increase the risk for many cancers, including breast cancers. We know so much now about this, like, hidden civilization within us, the gut microbiome, this housing of trillions of microbes in our gut, which actually has a relationship to breast cancer. In fact, it's so critical that what we've now discovered, and it's always hard to know cause and effect, but the gut microbial population is different in women who develop breast cancer. We know that the vaginal microbiome is important and that when they've tested the microbial population of the ovaries, which by the way, in medical school, I was taught everything inside the body was sterile. And of course, now we know that's ludicrous because what's to keep the bacteria and the other microbes from from getting in? It's just different and different types of populations that women who have ovarian cancer actually have a different microbial population of their ovaries. And of course there's been a lot with talcum powder, you know, as as potentially a carcinogen. So I look at all the potential carcinogens that are out there in the world and then try to lower exposures and then try to increase gut health and liver health so that we can actually remove these toxins from our bodies because much of the increase in breast cancer in young women which is increasing significantly, is because that they are, they're being exposed to these chemicals as well, looking at the circadian rhythm, that women who work the night shift, which unfortunately doing deliveries for so many years, I worked night shift essentially, that women who have altered circadian rhythm by working at night have increased risk of breast cancer. So, you know, I look at all these different factors and then help women to create a healthy and hopefully enjoyable lifestyle that will help to lower breast cancer. We know post-menopausally, obesity is a huge risk for both developing breast cancer in the first place and also having a recurrence if they do get breast cancer. So as a physician, there is a lot that I do to try to lower the incidence of breast cancer and recurrence.
2: Hmm. So, Ali, you in the book, um, which recounts lots of different women's stories, one of the things that you talk about at the outset uh, in relating back to our conversation about beating cancer and what that word means, I think, and maybe you can talk just for a minute about it, and then I want to ask something else, about the living with cancer and the Cokie Roberts story seemed just so representative of what you were talking about. So can you talk a little bit about her story and what lessons we can draw from it?
3: Sure. Um, When I first approached Koki, who I was lucky enough to work with um, for a few years at ABC for an interview in this book, I knew that she had gone through breast cancer a decade or 15 years prior. And so we sat down, um, she told me her whole story. She was wonderful Uh, she talked about how, um, when she was diagnosed the first time she went on a beach vacation with her family because she knew that, you know, it wasn't like she was going to drop dead while she was on vacation with them. She wanted to just have minimal disruption to her life. And what I didn't know when I was sitting there talking to her about, you know, ostensibly what was in the past, I didn't know that she had recently experienced a recurrence and that her cancer was back this is, you know, 15 years hence, which is not completely unheard of. It happens, um, which is part of the reason why, you know, one diagnosis of breast cancer can lead to, um, you know, affecting your mental health for the rest of your life because you're worried about, you know, you being part of that recurrence um cohort. Uh, and it was so inspiring to me that she was able to, compartmentalize in a way to speak about her experience with breast cancer even though she knew she was back actively in the fight and not let it completely take over her life not let it derail her from doing the things she was passionate passionate about she was sitting there speaking with me in her office she had just come in for a work day um and uh i spoke to her towards the beginning of my uh interviews in putting this book together and before i spoke to her Again, going back to this idea of what does it really mean to beat this disease? I had always thought about it as it's something you do and then you, you know, you get rid of it and then you move on. And, um, speaking with Koki and learning later about what phase she was in in her breast cancer experience was really eye opening for me in terms of understanding that, um, One's experience with breast cancer doesn't simply end when you finish your treatment, um, which is something that I think anybody who's dealt with breast cancer will tell you that just because they're done with treatment, it's not like they get up and walk away as if everything's back to normal. In fact, um, many report, you know, for years feeling anxiety uh, that every time you go in for your checkup, you know, it's, it can be scary. You can, you can get worried that they're going to see something and then the other side of that is when you're done going in and getting your treatments, um, a lot of women report feeling like if they're no longer actively going in for their treatments, are they taking a step back and are they letting their guard down? And if they're not getting their infusions on a weekly basis or whatever, um, is the cancer just going to come back? So losing the security blanket of going in and getting treatments can actually be very uh, very disconcerting, even though, you know, we think of it often as being the celebratory time when you're done with chemo and you ring the bell and whatever, but that can often just be the beginning of the struggle. So um, Koki was really uh, representative of what it fully means to deal with this for the rest of your life, and and she did with dignity and with um, just a joie de vivre that she exhibited every day with everybody around her until she passed.
0: Mm. So, you know, I was just going to jump in, Mike. Yes, I was
2: going to ask you to jump in. (laughs) Oh,
0: okay. (laughs) Well, this and some other really powerful recurring themes were in your book, which really uh, saddened me and also um, sort of reinforced what I do in, in terms of trying to help patients. One was the recurring theme of doctors who basically blew patients off because they were young and ignored their their masses and their symptoms. And that um, is really horrific, really. And that came up so often in the book that doctors, the, the doctors that are talked about in the book seem to be so unaware of the statistics that although, of course, the vast majority of young women, women who are premenopausal are not getting breast cancer. And that's, of course, fortunate that the majority do not but yet the incidence of breast cancer in younger women is really rising significantly and they seem to be unaware of that and and therefore miss the diagnosis and delay the diagnosis which can have an impact of course on the eventual outcome and so i think that you know it's really important that medical school education and doctors are really up on that and then the other theme of ongoing, really post-traumatic stress disorder, which now they've shown that happens in a a huge percentage of women who don't have breast cancer, but have scares. You know, they go in and they have um, a mass or something that shows up. Um, Either it's a cyst that they feel, or it's something that shows up on an imaging study, and then they may have a biopsy, but it's benign, but then they're sort of into the system where they feel they're just the time bomb waiting to turn into cancer. And of course, the women who have cancer, and they feel they're a time bomb waiting for it to come back. And I think in actually both groups need to really be addressed from a Psychological point of view. And I think they are, like you said, once they're done with treatment, they feel like they're just left out there to drift in the waters and that there's no one there helping them. And that happens to women who get into, I call it going down the rabbit hole, where they keep getting rescreened and rescreened and rescreened, even though they actually don't have breast cancer. And so both situations create ongoing severe anxiety, really a form of post traumatic stress disorder. And so um, I incorporate a lot of mind-body medicine. There's all different types, you know, guided imagery, meditation, progressive relaxation and tapping and talk therapy. You know, women get into groups and they can talk about their feelings and so on. I think that these are all really areas that doctors are often lacking in in understanding. And that's what's so I thought wonderful about your book is bringing these really Important key points and and of course koki's story can embody much of it and and her resilience and so on and um, the fact that Breast cancer, you can never say you're 100% cured. There are cases that come back 20 years later. And of course, people can get a second primary. One of the biggest risks for breast cancer is having had breast cancer. And um, that's why I totally understand where you came from to have your prophylactic mastectomy. And um, you know, I was interested in what you were thinking about for your ovaries too, because that I don't think was addressed. So I was thinking, what, what is she gonna do about that issue? And also the uterus. So you know, in BRCA1 now, they're, they're finding increased risk for endometrial cancer as well. So, you know, I would love to see where how you're handling that, you know, because that has to be stressful for you.
3: Yeah, that's a, a wonderful question. Uh, and it is something I am actively uh, engaged in talking about and thinking about quite a bit um, if I can digress for just a moment to address uh, and just emphatically agree with a couple of the things you said. First of all, um, the fact that doctors, um, at least—and look, I didn't set out to make this a, yeah. an anti-doctor book because I love doctors. They, you know, my, the, the the doctors that have treated me—I've been so lucky that I've had amazing medical care, and I find that most, uh, in most cases, doctors do have their patients' best interests at heart. But it did happen again and again that they weren't really listening to their patients. They weren't uh, accepting the fact that breast cancer is on the rise among younger women um, for exactly the factors that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, and so it's my hope that in highlighting these things in the book and in talking about it like we are now, um, it can reinforce the need to um, challenge the the, the, the preconceptions that a lot of the medical community, I think, um, it, it ha, has been ingrained in them for, for generations. Uh, the second thing is that there's a wonderful resource for people who have gone through their treatment who may be cancer-free but are still dealing with, as you mentioned, the PTSD that can be associated with a cancer diagnosis. It's called Living Beyond Breast Cancer. And I forget who runs it. are looking for um, a community of people who have been through one or more diagnoses and are now dealing with... Um, you know, okay, I'm done with the chemo. You know, people have stopped dropping off casseroles or offering to take care of my kids, but I'm still dealing with this on a daily basis. And so that's a great resource, Living Beyond Breast Cancer. In terms of the um, ovarian element, um, my husband and I recently finished our, uh, we're doing IVF. Um, We would have pursued IVF regardless of whether or not I had the BRCA mutation because we found ourselves unable to get pregnant without medical uh, assistance, um, as, uh, like one in eight, um, uh, you know, um, couples do. And, um, An ancillary benefit is that I'm able to screen out embryos that have the BRCA mutation. Um, We've done four rounds of egg retrieval, and we've collected lots and lots of embryos as a result of the embryos we have so far. We have the results from three of the four rounds. We're waiting on the results from round number four. But so far, we have 3 braca BRCA-free, uh, very good condition embryos. So we're hoping that uh, those um, become our children. Um, I, we also know that the um, success rate for one round of IVF is about 60%. So it's not a sure thing. So that's why we did so many rounds, um, because it's my um, goal to remove my ovaries and do all of it. Get rid of the the uterus, the fallopian tubes as soon as possible. And when I say we're currently thinking about this, we literally are, are meeting with my uh, fertility specialist tomorrow to discuss... Um, Some of the pros and cons um, with uh, doing the prophylactic, um, those surgeries before a, a pregnancy or waiting until after. And of course, you know, right now I'm 34 years old. I turned 35 in June. And the recommendation that I've had hammered into my head since I was originally tested for BRCA 15 years ago is that I need to remove my ovaries by age 35 or whenever I finish my childbearing, whichever comes first. I'm looking 35 straight in the face and I'm just going down that childbearing road. So um, we're actively looking at what is the latest um, uh, medical guidance, what is the recommendation of my reproductive endocrinologist, my gynecologist. I have an ovarian specialist that I talk to. Um, and also some of the wonderful OBGYNs and other women's health doctors that I've come to know as a result of writing this book and being engaged in this topic. So I feel very blessed that I have this incredible um, village around me that can help me, help guide me through this decision. But it's definitely something that I am, uh, you know, it's it's a tough decision to make. And I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do yet.
2: Well, this is get exciting. Getting- before, Very we exciting.
3: Move, before we
2: <laughs> transition to the next topic, is there any follow-up to what Alice said, any, any advice that you have?
0: Well, you know, it's, it's a really difficult thing. I mean, what the, um, the BRCA genes are, you know, it's a fascinating thing. They're actually tumor suppressor genes. So they're designed to prevent cancer. The, the human body, when it's working properly, is totally amazing and has all these different mechanisms to prevent cancer. And in fact, um, the menstrual cycle itself helps to prevent cancer because it actually activates tumor suppressor genes. So, and, and that's where, you know, like women who um, have like BRCA1, should be aware of going on things such as oral contraceptives. I mean, this doesn't get talked about enough that anything that sort of disrupts the normal cycle can actually in certain people like BRCA1 can even increase the risk. So, you know, all the things that we can do. um, And of course, you know, we live in a world where we delay childbearing and we know that breastfeeding at a young age seems to be helpful. Even having pregnancies at a young age it actually alters the way genes are expressed. So we've changed our whole lifestyle. We've gotten rid of our menstrual cycles. We have not had babies at our young ages that when we were designed. And yet, you know, I'm not going to tell people that they should all have their babies by 19. You know, that's not going to happen and, and breastfeed for three years. So, you know, we, we live in a world that's challenging. And so we have so many of these decisions to make. And, and so what can I do? You know, I, I do... Um, Really support people who have to make these decisions and then look at the repercussions of like taking your ovaries out at a very young age because there's so much misunderstanding about the role of hormones because they mix them up. You know, it's like thinking strawberry flavored jelly beans or organic strawberries when we use chemical, chemical, what really are endocrine disruptors and we put them in our bodies and you know, as contraceptives, and they can have impacts. So, you know, I just want, you know, for for Ali to know that if she removes her ovaries at a young age, which is going to happen, it's just a question of this year, next year, the following year, or so on, it's going to happen at a very young age, that that's going to increase a bunch of risk for her, and that um, hormones are not the enemy. And um, so I'm sure you have this amazing team that they know that you're going to need hormones, and that uh, that's, you know, some people, they're so afraid of hormones, they think hormones give people cancer. When, when you have appropriate balanced hormones, they actually are designed in our body to eliminate or reduce the risk of cancer. And it's all these unfortunate uh, lifestyle changes that we have made and the chemicals around us that have um, activated genes to function in different ways so um i you know I hope you maybe you'll write a little sequel or something in a magazine you know I plan find on it. Out, you know your story <laughs> yes. because you know this is um not a rarity any longer you know yeah. this it it happens to um celebrities to average people you know, and um how to deal with it is is really critically important, so you know the stories in your book are really important to learn from and and you yourself are you know uh, can be a very great learning, uh, example as other people have and how to deal with, with, um, getting say a raw deal in life a bit, you know, and yeah. how to make the best of it and have a high quality life.
3: Exactly. And I, I will just say that, uh, I have been, uh, I definitely hit the genetic lottery in more ways than one with, uh, you know, I have a wonderful family. We've had all the, the resources and the privileges that you could possibly be afforded to me. Uh, and so the way I look at it is if this is if this is my lot in life, um, I really lucked out. (laughs) And so that's how I try to approach it. And if I can pay it forward by using my experience to help, um, illuminate any of, of what we've been talking about, then, um, then it's, it's for, uh, then I feel that I've, I've been, you know, uh, conferred this for a reason. That's how I try to look at it.
2: So what I'd like to do is sort of return to the, process of the book, in a sense. And I want to add one thing for our male members of the listening audience, which is that they project that about 200,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in the coming year, and about 2000 men will be diagnosed with breast cancer. So if you're listening men, and you think, well, this doesn't affect me, think again, Uh, may not be in the same numbers, But men have the same ability to contract, if that's the word, contract. Absolutely.
3: People with breasts. It doesn't matter, male, female, trans, non-binary. If you, you know, if you have a chest, you're at risk to some extent or another.
2: So the book describes sort of a multi-stage process that you go through. I want to start by saying I had prostate cancer and, you know, survivor, or, or I don't know what the word is. I'm cancer-free for a long while now, but I still remember very well um, driving in my car, and I get a call from my urologist. They said, hi, I just wanted to let you know that the, the test came back positive, positive." and I, I never know what that word... Doctors are funny. They use the word positive and negative in ways that I never understood. And I said, Oh, great. He said, no, 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 not that positive, (laughs) positive for, for cancer. Just like, I think you said in your book, someone said, I've got triple negative and you said, Oh, great. Three negatives. But of course that's just not what you want. But so Mm -hmm. when I understood the word positive and, you know, steadied the, steadied the car, um, yeah, I started thinking about the the stages that one goes through. And your book talks well about it. And maybe we can walk through this for people who are thinking about it for the the first time. And maybe we can start with the decision to be tested, which we have talked about, and maybe turn to the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Because I remember in my instance, he said, your results are positive please come into the office so we can talk about it and i went into the office with my wife thankfully because as soon as he said well you have prostate cancer and you're going to need surgery i stopped listening i i didn't i don't know if he said any other words after that because i just stopped listening and you talk a little bit about the this diet you get the diagnosis and how should you come to the doctor's office to hear what they say in the first instance.
3: Yeah. And I I think it's something that in many cases, it's why I wanted to focus on it in the book. It's a period in your experience that is sometimes overlooked because we all kind of uh, immediately jump to what's your treatment. How are you going to go about, you know, overcoming this, but there is a very real period where you might be in the twilight of being told of your diagnosis and not really knowing what to do and everybody goes through that and there is no right or wrong way to deal with it, but there are some uh, things to watch for when you are dealing with that. Um, And one of them is what you just mentioned. First of all, doctors sometimes um, tend to speak in, you know, a certain language that can be very difficult for a civilian to follow. And I have always made it my, goal to make sure I'm asking as many questions as I need to, to make sure I understand what it is they're telling me. Um, And that's happening now with my IVF journey, where through no fault of their own, doctors tend to just fall back on language that's comfortable to them, which is not necessarily what uh, you or I, without a medical degree, find comfortable. So I'll say, hold on, let's take a step back. What is it that you are saying? Am I correct in understanding it this way? and repeat it back to them. Um, but in terms of the very real and understandable and, and very common response of just kind of tuning out once you hear that you're, you do have cancer, um, uh, it happens all the time. And what you did in bringing your wife is, is, is really the best, I think, um, strategy to overcome that sense of just glazing over because you have a third party there who can, who has your best, obviously cares very much about what happens to you and they can be the ones to absorb that information to maybe take notes in a way that you are just too close to the news to really take a step back and comprehend whether that's a partner or a family member or a very good friend. Um, And there are patient advocates who, who do these, do this kind of stuff, as their job, um, those are all options. Um, but I would say it's a very good idea to have somebody else with you to take those notes and to help help uh, in the process. And then after that, um, again, no right way to come to a conclusion about what um, course of action you want to take. I know a lot of people who da- dove straight into Dr. Google and tried to come up with a strategy based on what they read on the internet. Um, And in some cases, uh, learning on your own can be empowering um, to understand the terminology, the questions that uh, you might want to ask that a doctor might not volunteer. Um, But at the same time, uh, Googling and looking on the Internet can get overwhelming, and it can set you down a course of questioning and second-guessing that might not be healthy. So I would say that based on, you know, the interviews I've done, It really depends on what kind of person you are. If you're somebody who really likes to immerse themselves in the details and the minutia of anything they're experiencing, um, you know, if you uh, are really interested in, you know, I don't know, parasailing and you wanted to learn everything there was about parasailing before you went out and did it. If you take that approach and apply it to cancer, then good for you. You know, that may be something that works for you. But if you're much more of the kind of person that like stays in their lane and, and, and Isn't, you know, you you do what you do, but you don't need to like become an expert in whatever it is you're working on or doing, and you just kind of trust the experts to do that, then don't suddenly try to become uh, an armchair expert in the cancer that you're being diagnosed with. Um, So there's no right way to deal with that. Lots of people went for second, third, fourth opinions. Uh, That can also be very helpful. Um, There are a couple instances where um, uh, patients that I spoke to felt extremely comfortable with the first doctor they went to, but I would say that's just as likely not to happen as it is to happen. So if you don't feel a great connection, a great vibe with the first doctor you go to, go to another one. Um, And, you know, of course that, uh, that point uh, ignores a very critical part of the conversation, which is that um, access to equitable health care is not created equal, and that's a huge problem in our country. But for the sake of this conversation, I'm, of course, assuming a lot about a person's access to health care, about their access to um, time from work to be able to pursue uh, equitable health care. So I know that there's a lot of nuance that's left out of the conversation with the advice that I'm, that I'm spouting off here.
2: And please, Dr. Kirsch, How should a patient evaluate if they have the right doctor for them? And how should you, as the doctor, evaluate whether you're the best doctor for this patient?
0: Well, if you look back at what Ali was just saying, you can see the complexity of going through this process. First, there's understanding the diagnosis. And then there's trying to figure out what to do about it. You know, what kind of treatment to choose and then then the whole healing journey beyond. And they can actually involve different people and different teams of people. And if you think about um, like breast cancer, the person, if you're going to have surgery, uh, you need to have someone who's a very skilled technician. Now, sometimes a skilled technician is not a great communicator. I mean, this can happen. So that's where like for me uh, as sort of like part of the team. Like when I have a patient who is diagnosed with breast cancer, first of all, I never use positive and negative. So I'm glad I don't. (laughs) I I just tell it like it is, you know, and um, it is hard and, but you definitely want to make sure they understand what their diagnosis is not like turn it around. And it turns out was, you thought it was good and it turns out it's bad. But um, you know, I explain to patients that sometimes the people who are surgeons are not always as good as we would like at communicating things. So that's where I come in and I say, okay, well I'm part of your team unless, you know, you want to cut me out. And after you meet with and I usually suggest going to two different surgeons. And then and then I can try to be like an arbiter, you know, like I'll talk, you know, tell me what they said and I'll try to decipher it for you. Now, not everybody has that, but that's what I try to do. Sort of like an independent, you know, like I have no skin in the game here. You know, I just want to help you. So, you know, maybe trying when you decide, try to get a different doctor, maybe your family doctor, someone who you trust. Even a, a doctor in the family, but you know, because I do that a lot <laughs> as a, a doctor in my family, that um can sort of wade through the different choices and then help them to see what is the best choice for, for them. And because it's really how do you decide? You go to two doctors and they give you two different opinions. What are you supposed to do? Eeny meeny miny mo or go to a third and then the, you know, two out of three. You know, so it's nice to have an independent doctor, I think, when you're dealing with huge issues that can really be life and death decisions, you know. So we definitely want to make sure that people make the right choice. Now, in terms of like therapies, usually there's disagreement in therapy when there's no clear choice, not because doctors are like wildly off the charts and like wanting to do different things. It's because there's no clear road. That is going to be the best, and that happens actually quite a bit and has been in breast cancer, and that's because of all the innovations in new treatments and and how to um, how to use them for different types of breast cancer because like like Michael said, you know every breast cancer is not the same there's different different tissue types, different aggressiveness, and different types of cells in the breast itself so it's not all one size fits everything the same, so it's really um, important to recognize that when doctors give different opinions, it is often because there is no absolute right or wrong, and it's a judgment call, and it's an evolving science. And so that's where, you know, talking to the doctor and saying, you know, like, I know there are different options. Why are you recommending this for me? What's the data to support it? You know, what's the newest out there in terms of studies and so on? Because this is really, in breast cancer, it's really an ongoing, evolving science. And it's really turned breast cancer, in many cases, like people who have metastatic cancer, it's turned it from an immediate death sentence to a long-term chronic disease. So some women with metastatic breast cancer may die, unfortunately, um, at an old age, but like, say, from a heart attack with breast cancer, as opposed to dying from breast cancer. You know, and so on, or some other complication that may be associated. For example, because um, of the drugs that they're treated with, that may increase the risk of osteoporosis. They may get a fracture, increase cardiovascular risk, and that's where the long-term team comes in. Because unfortunately, some of the therapeutic modalities do have significant long-term side effects. So it is complex going through when once you're diagnosed with breast cancer, and you really need to work hard to put together uh, together a team that's also going to help you heal and get through the surgery, because often people are not always given the best advice as to, well, how do I heal best? You know, what do I put in my body? You know, do I exercise? What sh- food should I eat? And so on to optimize my healing capability. So um, it, it's quite a process. And every every patient has to be an advocate for herself and also to bring in family members who can help, you know, to guide them because it's like, can be overwhelming.
2: Mm. So, Allie, I wanted to ask a question. We, We touched upon it, but it's sort of the phase of the, you have your diagnosis, then you have the dealing with the diagnosis, what we've just been talking about, selecting your team, selecting your therapy, determining what you're going to do. all that I sort of think of as the physical thing. But there is, and you touched upon it, and I want to return to it, because there is this huge mental component to it. And we talked about how Koki was able to just get on with her her life. I know for me, it wasn't so simple to just get on with my life after my surgery. And I was Uh wondering if you could talk through sort of the Psychological component to it. Both of you guys can talk through mm-hmm. the psychological. It seems to me that there's a relationship between your physical well-being and your your mental health.
3: Absolutely, uh, and I would say first of all that Koki and her just the way she approached it is is not the norm. And so, I mean, she's an extraordinary case of just somebody who is able to put this part of her life over here and just keep going with everything else. It was superhuman to me. Um, With that said, um, uh, Cheryl Crow actually had some good advice on this score, which is that um, it's important not to lie to yourself in terms of what you're feeling. And if you are sad, if you are um, feeling depressed on a certain day, which happens a lot when people are dealing with cancer and lots of other things, but that it's best to recognize and and just not try to fight going through that um, and and experience it experience the full spectrum of emotions that you're getting hit with as a result of this really crappy um, you know because there's no way to sugarcoat it it's 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 cancer is never a good thing um, so if you can, experience those emotions when they are happening without, you know, giving yourself up to them. um, Then I think that is something that a lot of people have found a healthy way to deal with all of this, Um, you know, to identify, okay, you know, I'm, I'm sad right now. I'm experiencing sadness. And, uh, you know, once you've identified it, you can take steps to, you know, maybe talk about it um, to understand what's at the root of it. Um, and again, hopefully find a way through it, um, and not try to fight it, not try to mask it. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about what people refer to as toxic positivity, where you just, you know, you're always thinking, oh, well, it could be worse. I could be this or that. And it's like, no, this is what's happening to you in this moment. It sucks. Um, you know, you don't need to just constantly run away from how you're feeling about something. Um, I, at least in my life, have found that therapy really helps. Talk therapy in terms of when I identify, you know, a certain way I'm feeling, it can be really helpful to have a disinterested third party who can help, um, you know, just kind of go through those feelings with you. And I think that's very true for people dealing with a cancer diagnosis. I'm not saying everybody who's going through cancer should you know, get involved in talk therapy, but it's one way to keep, um, be mindful, just, just increasing the, the amount of mindfulness in your life. And then just quickly, the the flip side of that is a lot of people found solace in also being more mindful when they were experiencing things that brought them happiness and joy. You know, Jerry Willis, who's a, um, a reporter talked about how she got so much more enjoyment out of nature when she was going through her treatment, just being able to walk and experience the birds singing and the flowers and all of that sensory stuff that we take for granted so much Uh, that a flip side of a cancer diagnosis is that suddenly you may find yourself appreciating even more those precious little aspects that make our lives worth living. And so um, I think there's a lot of benefit that can come from just an increased sense of mindfulness, whether that's towards the negative or towards the positive.
0: You know, Ali, you had to deal with um, changing, really, a a big change to your body. And we can't underestimate the impact that breast cancer has on the psyche of women from so many different points of view. Of course, there's the life and death issue where they're actually thinking of their mortality and what this could mean in terms of their longevity and so on. Um, There's the fear of the treatment itself, you know, losing hair feeling unfeminine, um, having nausea from chemotherapy, um, you know, the impact of radiation if they have it and, and so on. There's it's like so much that goes into it. And then, of course, there's the, um, the loss of breast tissue or modif- the, the entire breast, two breasts, parts of a breast. Um, now in my area, they're doing um, oncoplasty surgery. So if they do a lumpectomy, they don't just do a lumpectomy like in the old days, they actually like r- do a remodeling of the breast and then the opposite breast to try to make them match and to try to reduce any uh, like big concavities that can form you know, from having a chunk of breast removed to try to make it look aesthetically good. But sensation can change when you remove nipples, there's sexual issues that can come in. I mean, it's so huge. And I think that many women don't get the uh, attention that they need to deal with this gigantic array of psychological hits that happen to them, uh, so many levels of fear and worry and identity issues and like their body image and so on. So I think that our medical system really needs to have more comprehensive. And they're, they're developing, you know, breast care centers so that it's not just an isolated person who gives chemo it's not an isolated person who does the surgery that they put it together and then create a whole support team and then looking at how to nourish the body because that's of course where I always come in so much you know like how to feed and nourish the body and and restore all of these proper microbiomes and nutrient status and fitness status which also kind of falls by the wayside and uh, earlier we were we were talking before we came on about the role of physical therapy and and fitness and how that is really left out of the equation in so many areas of medicine, including breast cancer recovery. And I think that should be definitely part of the picture. And and every woman has to find her own path. Like that's why I try to offer an array, like a menu of here are different mind body practices. You know, we do like biofeedback and different forms of meditation, guided imagery, like you mentioned, talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. So, you know, there's always something that will fit for someone. You know, uh, walking meditation in nature is a form of meditation. And so many of us don't know how to quiet our busy brains, but there are many different ways that we can go about it. And, and, and deal with this because it's not just like the idea that emotional is different. Like Michael mentioned, there's a correlation between mental health and physical health. I mean, it's not two different subjects. They're totally one. And we know that um, you can actually change the way your autonomic nervous system is, is working. We can actually calm our pulse. We can slow our heartbeat. We can improve our blood pressure. So, we can help to be healthier and and sleep better, and when we uh, which then of course translates into all areas of of health, so this is not a trivial thing I mean this is so huge the emotional impact that we sort of started with it, and then maybe we end with it in some way that the emotional relationship of women 's breasts to their health to their psyche, and so on, and what happens when women go through breast cancer is is life changing
2: in a thousand different ways. I want to go back to, we've talked about just now the mental well-being, and I think Felice and Ali you guys should um, go into business together and open these breast cancer <laughs> centers. You know, Allie get out of journalism, Felice, the <laughs> treatment of patients, and and create these breast cancer centers. And I, I would I, I would suggest that in in this breast cancer center, is the physical therapist, because we do know that breast cancer has many side effects, physical side effects. We've talked about the emotional ones just now, but loss of shoulder motion, arm weakness, swelling in the chest and arms, and posture changes. And so I wanted to, I guess, start, Ali, by asking, was this part of your contemplation? Were you, were? did your doctor advise you, hey, Allie, you know, when this is done, there's going to be stuff in your body that's very different and perhaps you should start physical therapy before your surgery and, and have a physical therapy plan that you're, you're carrying out in addition to, you know, the post-surgical procedures. How, how did that work out for you? And Felice, what, what's your mm-hmm. thinking about the integration of that into the whole therapeutic process?
3: Yeah, I would say uh, I have no doubt that physical therapy is incredibly important um, for me. Personally, it was not part of my pre-surgery um, regimen or my post-surgery regimen. I, th- I think that has mainly to do with the fact that I was 20 years old. I was so young. Um, I It was never brought to me that I might need to work on my mobility issues. Of course, I was advised, you know, I couldn't raise my arms above my head for several weeks, but my muscles just kind of bounced back which is part of the reason why i had the surgery when i did because i knew that the longer i waited throughout my life the longer recovery time i was going to have to deal with um <clears throat> i will say that i obviously was bedridden for you know at least a week um after the the first surgery because it is major major surgery um and then eventually i started um, taking walks down the driveway, and uh, of course, I was still wearing my drains at this point. you know you I had six i think drains across my chest to you know deal with the the discharge um, for about a week after um, and then shortly after, um, you know not long after we started working on my expanders, which are like little boxes that they put in your chest where your breast tissue used to be to prepare your body for these implants. Um, I started going on the treadmill and just doing lots and lots of walking. Um, and so I was never um, out of commission for an extended period of time. And to that end, I was able to bounce back into my routine very quickly. I think, you know, I didn't lose that much upper body mobility or upper body strength. Um, but I think I'm an anomaly in that sense because, again, I was so young.
0: And- and I was going to chime in that, you know, breast cancer surgery is not one type of surgery. So sure. for you, you know, yours, although obviously you had the breast removed, it, it the recovery wasn't too, too different than a, a woman who decides, hey, I want to have an augmentation because I'm very small. And then they get breast implants. So of course it's bigger, but, but not enormously bigger for someone in your age group in terms of recovery of course it has tremendously different implications than just getting breast implants but you know so the women who have extensive lymph node dissections in their um, mm-hmm. axillary area i mean that has a huge impact and when people have radiation it can do a significant amount of damage to the underlying muscle structures and so on and and can cause inflammation in the little muscles between the ribs and so on can so there's like when people have the most, um, let's say, more extreme cases of breast cancer surgery where they have multiple lymph nodes removed, they have um, you know, a large lumpectomy, they have radiation or they have mastectomy. And they have sometimes have to have radiation if it's close to the chest wall and so on. Uh, that is really going to need to have physical therapy and it is often not part of the treatment. I mean it's just ignored and so that is so important. The whole the whole story of lymphedema. I have patients that come in who had breast cancer surgery, multiple lymph nodes removed say a decade earlier before I even met them and no one actually talked to them about how to really be protective of their arms so that they don't get lymphedema. It's like shocking how that like everyone thinks it's somebody else's job to explain the the risks of, of the, you know, getting lymphedema. And that once that happens, there's really no fixing it. It's a huge, a huge change in life quality when that happens. So I absolutely, um, when I have patients with breast cancer, we talk about these things, but, you know, a lot of times it's, it's just forgotten by the surgeon thinks the oncologist is discussing it and the oncologist thinks the surgeon is talking about it. And there's not this really great coordination of care um, once you get past the initial tumor board and they decide, you know, this is the treatment course, then the follow through kind of falls by the wayside. So these are are really important things. And, you know, they're, they're really applicable to women who are often older, too. So if you look at women, the still the majority of of women who get breast cancer are postmenopausal women, and they often are already dealing with menopause, and all the issues of loss of muscle, sarcopenia, and loss of bone, and their joints are starting to go, they get more osteoarthritis. And then on top of that, they get these um, really significant surgical interventions, radiation and chemo, and it is really destructive to their musculoskeletal system. And uh, this really needs to be incorporated more. And I I think I'm going to go on a little bit of a, a mission expedition here in my own neighborhood to to try to get uh, my oncology and uh, tumor surgery friends to get a little bit more um, awareness of what needs to happen, because I think that they're just not thinking of it. And oncologists are really focused on, I don't want my patient to die. And they often forget about quality of life issues. So we need to bring this into the forefront of breast cancer treatment.
2: I think the final stage, Ali, in your book is the comeback. And can you talk a little bit about what has been the most helpful part of the comeback for you, how you get back to a quality of life that you want to live, uh, free of the front of the brain fears that, oh, my God, um, this could be the beginning of yeah. the end?
3: Yeah, and I would say that, you know, I know that the the I broke up each chapter into different, stages. And the last one is the comeback. Um, I will say that, of course, as we've talked, a cancer experience is not linear. So it's not like that's it, the end, you can turn the page on a cancer experience. So if anything, that was a bit more of a literary construct than anything that I think is indicative of how a cancer experience unfolds. However, I think throughout each um, story in the book, each woman, each, I mean, they all happen to be women, but, of course, not just women get breast cancer. Each person um, speaks about how their breast cancer experience changed their life, and to a person, it did all of them. And a big thing is um, some of the most you know, profound lessons are, how, you, you know, I mean, it's trite, and we say this all the time, um, it, but it's true, uh, as uh, some of the best... Um, uh, you know, blanket statements are um, that you really develop an appreciation for just, um, you know, life and the people in it that make you happy. Um, for a lot of people in the book, it underscored to them that they were doing exactly what they wanted to do in life um because you know it really does prompt these kind of soul searching conversations and, and introspections for other people it prompted a massive life change um in the case of Valerie Kondo's field uh who's a who's a gymnastics award winning gymnastics coach it shaped how she approaches um coaching her athletes and it paid off to um to great effect uh in the case of Christia Donaldson, um, it she uh, ending a line of hair care products. In the case of another entrepreneur, she had been working as a corporate lawyer and decided to, after she um, her green juices that she had been creating, uh, helped her with her recovery, she started a green juice line that's now sold um, in Whole Foods. And so I'd say one of the most inspiring things has been how a diagnosis can afford you this um, moment of introspection that we're not always granted in life. We don't always get that. We're just so focused on the here and now, and we lose sight of, you know, why we were put on this earth. And so, a lot of the women in the book expressed a gratitude for being able to have those moments of introspection, even though it was accompanied by so much heartache. Nobody would wish cancer on anybody. And I'm sure if given the chance, nobody would choose to go through it again. But with that said, there are profound benefits that can come as a result of it.
2: Dr. Gersh, uh, we're running up against our our time. Last thoughts from you, and then I'll let Ali close it out. But one thing, police, that I'd like, maybe because I know this is one of your subspecialties, is are there food and nutrition regimens that for previvors, people with predisposition should they be aware of and incorporating into their into their life? There, are there mitigants I guess I'm trying to ask?
0: Well, there are some. Now, we know that for breast cancer when it's diagnosed in the menopause, It's probably actually initiated 20 years earlier, and it it actually grows quite slowly. But then something may be sort of a promoter. Something will get that cancer to to grow more rapidly, and it can be um, more of a state of inflammation. So we now understand cancer as really a metabolic condition. It's about inflammation. So many of the same conditions that are associated with increased risk for diabetes and heart disease are also increased risk for breast cancer, like high levels of blood sugar and insulin and this sort of ubiquitous low level of chronic inflammation. So the happy news is that The same type of lifestyle choices, dietary choices, fitness, getting adequate sleep are going to be beneficial across the board. It's going to lower your risk of breast cancer and other cancers, also lower your risk of having heart attacks and strokes and getting diabetes and and so forth, because it's one body and it's, it's now understood that it's about having inflammation that creates DNA instability and then DNA breakage and that you don't have the the proper um, cellular mechanisms for killing cells when they should die and rejuvenating cells ahead of time, dealing with these precursors called misfolded proteins and so on. So what can we do? We can actually eat a whole foods, plant-based diet. Nature makes the best food manufactured food altered factory food is never going to be better so i say skip the middleman do the organic farm to table so you know shop farmers markets eat food that you prepare from scratch and know what goes in it if you look at a label first of all try to get food that doesn't have a label maybe a sticker that says organic fuji apple something like that but that's about the label you want and um you know, if you get it from the farmer's market, there's no sticker either. So the thing is to not use food that has chemical additives. They are often preservatives that are designed to kill bacteria. Unfortunately, as we just touched on, there are these trillions of microbes in our gut that no one understood that what they do and that they're so critical for our immune function. And that when you kill off the good guys in the gut, because you're putting in chemicals that kill bacteria in your food, then you end up having an unhealthy body that can lead to every kind of metabolic dysfunction, including cancers. So it's so simple when you say it, you know, go to bed the same time, try to get to bed between 10 and 11, try not to snack all day, because you don't want to have high levels of sugar, and glucose, um, and, you know, insulin, because high, continued high levels of of insulin is proliferative. It increases um, hormones like insulin, like growth factor one, which create proliferation. Now we all need to grow and proliferate, but we don't want endless proliferation. It's like the yin yang of Chinese medicine. You want to grow and then you want to pause. And if we constantly eat, we go into this constant state of proliferation. And when we eat a pro-inflammatory diet, a processed food, what we call the standard American diet, also known as the SAD diet, then um, we create this state of chronic proliferation and inflammation. And that's the ticket to developing cancer. And we want to avoid every type of endocrine disruptor, you know, chemicals in plastics and flame retardants, um, heavy metals and things like that that are going to interfere with our normal, beautiful hormonal functions, which are designed to actually activate tumor suppressor genes so that we don't get cancer. So it's it's a lot and it's it's a lot to ask of people. But um, when you try to make it fun, like exercise should be fun, eating delicious, healthy, natural food should be fun getting rest and getting, you know, our good Z's at night and, and feeling rested in the morning makes you have, you know, a bright, funny, fun day, you know, when you don't wake up and you can't get out of bed because you're so tired. Uh, So all the things that we can do, air purifiers, water purifiers, those are not trivial things. And we can start when, you know, before conception. So that's, you know, I deal with preconception. We now know that during in uterine life, that you can actually change how genes are expressed, making little children more pro-inflammatory and develop metabolic issues like too much body fat, visceral fat, insulin resistance when they're little children. So it's like a big, it's a big plan. It's like huge to try to get women healthy prior to conception, healthy during the pregnancy, to help little children eat the right foods right from the get-go, breastfeed as long as possible, and um, and then as an adult, you know, do all the things, sleep and sometimes um, eat and sometimes don't eat, you know, so I deal with a lot of intermittent fasting and so on. So it's a lot of lifestyle stuff. But yes, the answer is absolutely we can lower our risk of breast cancer when we take these steps And we can lower risk of return or recurrence of breast cancer as well. So it should be every woman who develops breast cancer should get on the ball and start doing lifestyle changes.
2: Allie, last word.
3: Oh, man, that's a tough act to follow. Um, I would just say that um, knowledge is power. And um, I am a full believer that if you have the ability if you know that you might be at risk for a certain mutation or whatever it is if you know you have a family history of a certain uh, ailment start checking it out see what you can do because in more uh cases than not there will be things you can do in advance to you know reduce your risk uh and so i hear a lot from people who are afraid to in my you know in my immediate orbit get the BRCA analysis test. Um, There are also lots and lots of other gene mutations that we're becoming more aware of that extend far beyond BRCA and aren't just, Mm -hmm. um, you know, related to uh, the Ashkenazi Jewish community, which, of course, has the high proclivity of BRCA. Um, But get the test. I, you know, I sometimes when people are, oh, I don't know, I'm so scared. I'm sorry. Get over it. That's my advice to you. I say that lovingly, but get over it get tested, and then make decisions. You don't, there's no right or wrong way to deal with a genetic mutation, but the important thing is to know whether or not you have one. So that's what I would say.
2: Well, this has been very instructive. I thank you both for being with us. When we release it, I think the community at large in our October Breast Cancer Awareness Month will be... Delighted to learn what you guys have just taught us all. So thank you so much for joining us today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
2: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldon.